You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful to have the opportunity to interview Professor Allison Prash from the UW-Madison Department of Communication Arts. Professor Prash's teaching and research focuses on politics, rhetoric, and culture. Professor Prash is currently completing a book manuscript on Cold War U.S. presidential rhetoric titled The Global Rhetorical Presidency, Cold War Rhetoric on the World Stage. And Professor Prash's book examines how U.S. presidents used their rhetoric abroad as a persuasive strategy. Today, we're going to ask Professor Prash about the state of political rhetoric in American politics and culture in a historical context. We are curious to get her perspective on how shifts in the tone and style of political rhetoric may play out in the future. There's so much to talk about during such an unusual and interesting time in politics, so let's dive right in. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Prash. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. We're just honored to be with you and get a little bit of your time. I want to start with a little bit just kind of about yourself and your teaching and research interests. We are so curious about also what you have, what set you on the pathway to becoming a professor and studying this area of work. So I want to ask you, were you a political culture and communications junkie as a kid? What about in high school and college? It just overall, what shaped your academic and intellectual interests towards politics, rhetoric, and culture? Well, yes, I was. Um, you could probably call me a political junkie. I, um, I've always been intrigued and interested in American politics, particularly studies of the presidency. I wrote my first research paper on the history of the White House in seventh grade. Um, in high school, I was the well, you could use various words to describe me, but I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, the, the strange student who would set aside um, the Tuesday night to watch the State of the Union address, and it was this sacred moment um, for me each January or early February. Um, and the West Wing was and is my favorite television show. So, um, so yes, I, I have been a political junkie. You know, I think I would say um, when I was in college, I was an American studies major, and so I was a I focused on political science and American history, um, and I, I spent a semester interning in Washington D.C. and um, it was during that experience, but particularly in my senior year of college, that I realized that one could actually study the rhetorical appeals of U.S. presidents and make that your job and career. And so I took a few years off um, between undergrad and graduate school. Um, and during that time, I was working in the corporate world for a few years, and I just kind of studied and read on my own. And then when I decided to go to graduate school, I knew that I wanted to, to study the presidency and specifically on um, the rhetoric of U.S. presidents. So then just so we can kind of cover all of our bases, then moving forward, I want to start out with some basic concepts in the context of what is political rhetoric and how do we know or how do we know what it is and how we know when we see it. So say it's the first day of one of your political rhetoric courses. How would you introduce or define the topic of political rhetoric in your classes? 
Yeah, so in in the first day um, or, or in the few first few weeks of my classes, and one of the things that I always spend some time talking with my students about is we go back to actually the history of the discipline of rhetoric and we talk about various ways that it was defined or described by, by key thinkers. And so one of the most common phrases or definitions that you'll hear about um, to, to describe or define rhetoric is Aristotle who writes that rhetoric can be defined as the ability in each particular case to see or to discover all the available means of persuasion. And so that gestures to the fact that all rhetoric, all public speech is situational. It's directed to a particular audience to address a particular problem or, or a situation that, that calls for a particular rhetorical response. Now, if we're gonna look at thinking about how that functions on a political stage or scale, we're, we're asking questions about how do we live with one another? How do we interact with the people around us on a local level, on a state level, a national level, or even a global level? And so when I talk about that with my students, I find it really important to stress this idea um, that Plato would introduce when he was writing about rhetoric, because you know Plato's known for many things, um, and maybe we don't necessarily think of him as a rhetorician first and foremost, but he actually was quite concerned about how rhetoric was operating in ancient Greece, and he had some pretty sharp criticisms that he would make of rhetoric because he essentially said at the beginning of some of his writings, you know, I'm actually, and I'm paraphrasing him, but I'm concerned about. The, the use of rhetoric because Plato said, I believe it's just mere flattery. It's just used to make people feel good about themselves or even to kind of be taken up um, by the words of a speaker. And Plato said, if there's gonna be a good rhetoric, if there's gonna be something that can be ethical or moral or used for productive political ends, it has to be in moments where the speaker is using the powers of oratory to direct the audience towards what is best for them. And so I always use the example with my students of saying, have you been in a conversation with a friend or a family member who tells you something you don't want to hear? You don't like what they're telling you, and yet you know they have your best interests in mind, and that's why they're giving you this information. It's, it's like that tough love. And for Plato in the political sphere, he's going to say, that's how you know if a rhetoric is good, ethical, moral, um, towards productive ends is if the speakers who are speaking to you and telling you, this is how we should live together. This is how we should make decisions together. Maybe sometimes you'll like what they're saying to you and maybe sometimes you won't. And I tell my students, you really know that rhetoric is used, being used in a good and productive and ethical way if that person is willing to say things that are difficult to hear. And so when we're talking about political rhetoric in more of a, a US context, one of the things that we frequently go back to is saying, okay, let's look at the, the motivations of this speaker. Are they doing it because they have the best in mind for the audience that they're speaking to, or are they just saying it to puff themselves up and to get followers and to, to gain power and influence? Because that's one way that you can distinguish um, is this rhetoric not just effective, but is it actually ethical and appropriate? It seems really kind of like there's a lot of different facets to what could or does constitute political rhetoric. But how do you think that these definitions of political rhetoric have changed over time. It seems like there's been a lot of intellectual development and change since these original classical Greek scholars mm -hmm. were discussing it. So how has the definition of political rhetoric changed over time? And then additionally, what role has shift the shift in mediated communication, say from print to TV to web and internet-based political communications, 
played in thinking about how we define political rhetoric? That's a great question. So let me start with kind of how it's shifted and changed historically, and then we'll talk about the, the question of the mediation or the various media technologies. And just to be clear, I'm, I'm focusing my answer here on a US context, because that's what I'm most familiar with. And so, you know, broadly construed, we could talk about political rhetoric in numerous different countries and how it's exercised and operates. And so I'm directing my comments here to kind of a US centric audience. Um, you know, the first thing that I would say, and I'm thinking here specifically about the presidency and how this idea of political rhetoric within the executive branch has developed, although I think you could apply some of these concepts, you know, to, to state legislatures or governors or, you know, um, senators or, or members of Congress. One of the things that happened at the beginning of the United States, so I'm thinking here about Washington and, and onward, you know, these individuals were quite concerned about avoiding the appearance of recreating the British monarchy. And so they were very deliberate about taking steps that, yes, they would speak to the public. And yes, they would, um, you know, attempt to persuade individuals to, to adopt their particular um, position. But they were also very careful to make sure that they were using their speech and their rhetoric to also indicate to the public that they had a voice or a vote in the interests or the 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 things that were being debated or discussed. And I mentioned that because now, today in the 21st century, um, you see various politicians or various presidents, for example, speaking in a particular way that kind of demands what I would argue um, in some senses is more of a monarchical or kind of overwhelming political force that doesn't necessarily remind the citizens that they have political agency or a vested interest um, in, in the decisions that, that are at hand. Um, and so one of the ways that I think we can think about the shifts or the changes in presidential rhetoric and political rhetoric in particular is you see a massive increase in presidential power in speaking to the public. Um, presidents have always spoken to the public. They have always addressed their appeals to the voters, but this has grown and increased, particularly during the 20th century, in which presidents are assuming that rhetorical stage or assuming that position of presidential leadership and power in ways that really shift and change during the 20th century. And that does have something to do with these changes in media technology. So for example, if you think about it, the 18th century, 19th century, um, US presidents, if they were going to speak to the people or speak to the public, you had to do that in personal direct contact. You had to do that um, in these live speech situations. So for example, we think about the Gettysburg Address and Lincoln delivering it as this really famous instance of presidential rhetoric. It is, but he actually had quite a small audience and, and it doesn't expand or extend in the ways that we might assume it does today. Um, but at the turn of the century, it, um, the, you know, the early 1900s, we begin to see, okay, we have the advent of print journalism really explodes. We have radio, eventually television. I mean, FDR is one of the people who really begins this practice of speaking to people directly in their homes through his fireside chats and making them feel as if he's there in their living rooms with him. And he gets all of these letters from citizens saying, I felt like you were among us and you were talking to us. And so this relationship between the president and the people really grows and develops. And that's something that only increases now with um, 
cable news or, or newsreels in the 1940s, 1950s, um, and now obviously in the age of a 24-hour news cycle or Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, I mean, the, the president is always accessible and in some cases is always tweeting to us or tweeting to be read by us. Um, and so you, you see really this integral relationship, I would argue, between you know, the, this massive increase in the, the frequency in which presidents are speaking to the people and also the various media technologies that allow that to happen. Professor Prash, I am so interested in this research you're doing, and I'm I wonder I'm wondering if you've ever done any work with um, the associate professor in the school of journalism, Catherine Magar, who teaches um, journalism 560, which is the mm -hmm. history of mass communications. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like the there's so much overlap if because um, she she does a lot of uh, research in like you know how. Uh, mass communication technologies changed uh, rhetoric and how it changed, you know, news in the United States at the turn of the century. So I'm sure that there's, I guess this is more of a comment, but <laughs> there's a lot of overlap yeah. with uh, Professor Magar's research too. Yeah, no, and I haven't, I haven't actually had the opportunity to, to, to work with her or meet her um, yet. I'm relatively new here to, this is only my second year um, at UW-Madison, um, but no, that's, there is a lot of overlap. And I think actually, Stressing that overlap when we talk about studies of political rhetoric is so important because sometimes I think scholars can get siloed in their their specific you know domains. And one of the things I'm really passionate about with my students is helping them understand when we talk about rhetoric, when we talk about political rhetoric, it's not just saying we're going to do close textual analysis, although that's important. But how does that rhetoric? How does do those messages reach a broader public? And depending on what media technologies you have available to you, your your possibilities really expand and extend as you see that grow and develop over time. That's a uh, fascinating. Of course, got to give a shout out to a uh, professor McGar. I also had her earlier in my uh, UW-Madison career for a journalism journalism course. And uh, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd love to see that collaboration in the future at, at some point uh, with Adam playing matchmaker over here, research matchmaker. <laughs> um, so then something that kind of came up uh, while you were discussing this evolution of presidential and political rhetoric is that it's really shifted in reaction to changes in mass communication. So... As a scholar of presidential rhetoric, how do you consume it? Like, where do you go to look for or absorb, I suppose, political and cultural communication? And has that changed over your time in studying this field? Obviously, in the last probably semester, I'm currently teaching a class on the rhetoric of the 2020 U.S. presidential election. So I would say in the last few months, um, it's been obviously heavily dominated by um, the, the presidential campaigns. You know, I have a pretty standing practice of reading New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street, Wall Street Journal, um, you know, various other publications. Um, you know, in your question, you kind of alluded to that there is so much. And so I think one of the challenges of being a scholar of presidential rhetoric in particular at a moment like this is making sure that I am aware of all of the things that, it, that are going on and it's constantly changing. Um, you know, I would say too, though, you asked the question about how has this changed over time? And this kind of gets to my research more broadly in the book that I'm working on. But um, I am really fascinated by and always on the lookout for examples or moments in which presidents or politicians more generally are utilizing their spoken oratory or the words that come out of their mouth and 
combining that with how they strategically deploy the situation or the place in which they are speaking. So broadly speaking, my research looks at um, how we understand spoken oratory or you know, spoken speech, speech acts within their physical and spatial contexts. And so, for example, in the book that I'm working on right now, it analyzes moments in which presidents and their administrations very deliberately designed these um, Cold War global tours where the president would literally travel the globe and they would plan these international tours in such a way that yes, the president could speak to a global international audience in, in direct and personal um, methods, but also be seen in these places around the world. And I, I focus on the Cold War because um, I'm making the argument that a crucial part of the United States Cold War rhetorical strategy was essentially to provide this image of the U.S. president speaking all of these locations around the world to argue to a broader global audience that the United States was superior to the Soviet Union, that the United States was in fact the leader of the free world. And so I'm really fascinated by this connection between spoken oratory and how the words that we say point the audience to specific locations and how then the place can actually become part of the argument or part of what is persuasive about a rhetorical act. We definitely want to ask you more about your upcoming book and then really dig down into some more of the contemporary president's rhetoric. But just while this has come up, could you maybe give us an example of that recently in presidential or other just high-level political rhetoric? Yeah, absolutely. So this isn't in the book, but um, it's a really a fantastic example and one of my favorites. Um, so in 2015, Barack Obama delivered a speech in Selma, Alabama, and he was commemorating the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, which is this moment in which you know these peaceful protesters are, are participating in the civil civil rights march and they are um, attacked by state troopers um, and billy clubs and dogs and all of these things, right? And it becomes this really iconic moment in the civil rights movement that, that many scholars argue leads or is one of the, the main um, encouraging factors to Lyndon Johnson to, to sign the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And Barack Obama goes back to Selma on March 7th, um, 2015, and he is seated in front of the Edmund Pettus Bridge and Congressman John Lewis, who was actually um, someone who participated in that march 50 years earlier, introduces the president. And Barack Obama goes on to talk about in the speech that he delivers at Selma about what he calls the story of America. And he frames the speech, he begins by essentially trying to describe what might've been going through John Lewis's mind at the time and narrating the events of March 7th, 1965. And then after situating his audience, who's listening to the immediate audience, but also this is, I mean, this is 2015, so it's covered by CNN, it's, you know, Twitter, there's images, all of these things. He then basically says to his audience, look, Selma is a representation of what the story of America is, that what happened here 50 years earlier demonstrates the courage of ordinary citizens who are willing to speak these uncomfortable truths, to go back to Plato, right, to speak these uncomfortable truths to the president, to their fellow citizens and say, hey, the things that are in our founding documents actually are not true for us. But throughout the speech, Obama 
continually reminds his audience of what Selma means. And Selma becomes a representation or an embodiment of his overall argument. And in the speech, Obama says, hey, there are places that are in this national narrative like um, Kitty Hawk and Cape Canaveral and Gettysburg and Appomattox. These are all places that make the story of America what it is and Selma is such a place. And so you can make an argument and I have made an argument in, in an article that I've published on this speech that, that really one of the most persuasive factors of Obama's speech at Selma is the fact that he's physically located in this place and that he's surrounded by the people who enacted the very story that he's narrating. And I tell my students when I teach the speech, if we only read the speech and just read the text, it's powerful, it's eloquent, it's, it's really moving and important, but if you understand where it is located or placed, it takes on an incredibly more um, richer and more nuanced um, texture and how this text operates. For any of our listeners interested in reading that article, it was published in the Quarterly Journal of Speech. So if anyone's interested in digging down deeper into that, go ahead and check that out. And then of course, while plenty of speeches are and political rhetoric is definitely presented at a place, some of it is presented without a place or say in a digital place, specifically on the internet. You know, we have to ask, as a scholar of presidential rhetoric, do you follow at real Donald Trump? I do, I do, he's the president. Um, It's my job to read what he's tweeting and try to understand how it works and why it works. What does constitute good political rhetoric and how, what, constitutes rhetoric that does work? Is it is it centered in good writing or good speaking or good, say, like video production on the back end or just the size of the audience you reach? How, how would you define good political rhetoric? So I think you would have to, not to get too philosophical, I think you would have to define what you mean by good, right? So we can talk about, um, do we mean good in the sense of directing an audience towards what is in their ultimate best interest, right? Going back to the comments on Plato. Um, Are we talking about good in a sense of a highly skilled production, something that evokes emotion? Um, Are we talking about good in the sense of that was a really eloquent or artful speech? I mean, all of those things can play a role. Um, So you gesture towards towards some of them. I will say for me personally, as a scholar, um, I think it's important to recognize when um, pieces of political rhetoric persuade audiences, even in moments in which the, the message or the ultimate argument is something that I may personally disagree with, right? We need to understand how and why rhetoric can be effective. Um, but I would argue that if we pay too much attention or give too much credence to the things that, um, for lack of a better term, can kind of fluff up the message. So if we're only looking at the um, video production or if we're only looking at a, a highly curated audience, for example, that is a part of the message. 
But at my core, I am a scholar who looks at the words that come out of someone's mouth and how those messages are applied. And so I would ask questions about, you know, what are the ultimate goals of this particular speech? Um, what audiences is this individual trying to reach? And are they effective or successful at doing so? And so there are a number of ways we can analyze, you know, the, the strength of arguments, the structure of the speech, the type of persona or tone that the orator adopts. I mean, what types of evidence that they use? Those are all really important questions when I'm looking at a, a text and analyzing if it is a quote unquote good piece of rhetoric. But I would say not everyone approaches um, analyzing political rhetoric that way. And in fact, for some people, part of the appeal of looking at how politicians speak is asking the question of how does it make me feel or what does it look like? And, and do I like what it looks like? And if so, then maybe I, I believe that it's good. So it sounds like that the definition that you hold of political rhetoric is, is very relative or contextual, where there's not maybe one uniform thing that is a, a tenant of good rhetoric, but it's all about in context, does this rhetorical act achieve at fulfilling the rhetor's purpose, considering the physical spatial context they're in, the audience that they're appealing to, um, and the the what the rhetoric is looking to achieve in its purpose, and then how all of the aspects around it, maybe including or maybe even giving primacy to the written or spoken word, but also considering how these other elements interact with it, work to achieve that purpose. So we can't necessarily say there is one primary tenant of achieving good or effective political rhetoric, but it is just really based on what is this specific act trying to achieve and then does it achieve it with what it uses to try and do so? Is that is that a fair way of summarizing it? Yeah, I think so. And the only thing that I would add there is to say that um, rhetoric is the art of the contingent. Rhetoric is looking at the various options that are available to an individual in a particular situation, often situations in which there is not a sure or clear answer and figuring out how to speak to an audience in such a way that the rhetor or the order will achieve their purpose. This is why rhetoric is an art, it's not a science. Um, and this can be uncomfortable when you're trying to analyze or, or look at these particular pieces of discourse, right? But it is highly situational. And yet I wouldn't say necessarily um, that that implies necessarily that there are no standards, um, but those standards change depending on the context. I think it's a really interesting note to point out that there is more of an art than a science to it. Um, I guess just uh, just another uh, just to put a put a pin in this. What do you think? Do you think that rhetoric can be beautiful? Is there is there beauty in political rhetoric, or do you think that the artistic or beauty elements of it are compromised by the fact that it's it's maybe looking to persuade, or maybe if we're even going to put a little bit more of a negative connotation on it, manipulate? Do you think that compromises mm -hmm. the beauty, or do you think that beauty can still exist despite? maybe some of these objectives? That's a great question. And I think that yes, rhetoric can be beautiful. Uh, I think in fact, some of the most remarkable pieces of political rhetoric have this element of 
you know, eloquence, beauty, um, an emotive quality that move individuals. I mean, there is a reason, for example, that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech continues to um, captivate and continues to speak to us in our contemporary moment. Um, there are hard truths in there that unfortunately still apply to our contemporary moment, but there are also things about that speech that are beautiful and eloquent and contribute to that text being persuasive. I think it's an important consideration to ask how those, um, the, the rhetorical flourishes, we might say, um, yes, people can manipulate them. Um, they can be used as propaganda. We have many good examples of that throughout history and over time. Um, but again, the job of the rhetorical critic is to be able to weigh those multiple considerations and recognize there always is a danger of utilizing that beauty or that eloquence or um, the fact that a speech can make you feel a particular way, just because that can be manipulated does not necessarily mean we have to throw out every example or every instance of that. I'm so interested to keep talking about this, but before we do, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us and the listeners a little bit about the book you are writing the Global Rhetorical Presidency, Cold War Rhetoric on the World Stage. Can you give us a little bit of, uh, a little bit of information about this book you're writing? Yeah, absolutely. I am, I'm in the finishing stages of it, which now that I've said that and it's recorded, you know, it's going to come back to bite me, I guess. But no, I am in the finishing stages um, of the book, which as anyone who's written a book will tell you is a, is a lovely place to be. And it's also an exhausting place to be. Um, so in this book, I'm, I'm really fascinated. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but I'm, I'm really fascinated by the ways in which US presidents have utilized their travels overseas um, to, to speak and to address not just the US public, but a more global audience. And one of the things that I find really fascinating is that although now it seems obvious that presidents travel abroad. In fact, that was a pretty radical thing to do at the beginning of the 20th century. Teddy Roosevelt is the first US president who leaves the borders of the United States while in office. And part of that is because in the, um, the, the 18th and 19th centuries, um, there were really strong historical precedents against presidents doing that. And part of it was because, you know, this, this famous caution from early presidents of to avoid, to avoid entangling alliances from other countries that would really distract um, from domestic concerns. But you really see this shift in how presidents are enacting foreign policy, beginning with, with Roosevelt onward, in that they begin to turn their attention from kind of this conquering the Western frontier and these you know, domestic concerns to this global stage. And so this happens at multiple moments between 1906 and the Cold War, but I focus my attention on the Cold War because it's really under Eisenhower that you see a deliberate turn to Eisenhower and later US presidents deliberately designing their global tours as a means of US propaganda, quite frankly, um, to convince audiences, both in the United States, that the United States was supreme. Um, so to make the public at home feel good about the, you know, their, their side to the Cold War, but then also these neutral or, or non-aligned countries of, between you know, the Soviet Union and the United States. And so I, um, 
my main method is that I've done a good amount of um, historical and archival research. So I've done research at all five of the presidential libraries um, and the National Archives. And so I look at both the behind the scenes information of what are the speechwriters doing? What's the State Department concerned about? What is the CIA trying to accomplish? Um, and then how do these tours kind of play in the public consciousness? And so it's kind of a behind the scenes and um, at the front of the stage analysis. And, and really I conclude that you know, these tours um, have functioned in a way that really direct and reflect US foreign policy during the Cold War in ways that we have not considered before. I kind of want to ask, not necessarily you know, Cold War presidents, but now that we're looking, I'm thinking specifically of trips that recent presidents have done overseas to like military bases to visit troops in Afghanistan and Iran. What's your take on like the rhetoric that presidents use at, in those kinds of situations? You can't really get much more, you know, propagandic than going to a military base. So like mm-hmm. what kind what what is your take on on those kinds of foreign presidential visits and with the the kind of rhetoric that they use on those? When you have those presidential visits to military bases either generally speaking, it's kind of a, a one stop and you're done. So I'm thinking about, for example, and I, the year is escaping me, but George W. Bush, soon after the invasion of Iraq um, and Afghanistan, does this surprise Thanksgiving visit to troops on the base. And then he comes home and it's when he's you know flying home that the media is alerted to it. You have moments like that. Or you have the more recent example of Donald Trump traveling um, to Asia specifically to step foot across the border in North Korea. But there's also you know, elements of this military presence as well. You know, I think um, generally speaking, in those instances, presidents are trying to perform the role of commander in chief and, and really um, elevate their stature. Also because more recently, our presidents are not, they have not really served actively in the military. And so it's a way to kind of unite themselves to that element of their job. Um, I do think, however, and then maybe this is generally because of my interests or, or what I've been writing about, is I think that the the instances of presidential rhetoric abroad that are more interesting and compelling to me are these moments in which um, presidents essentially are going on tour to the global public. And so I think the North Korea example um, can definitely be one of those. You think about after Barack Obama, soon after he was inaugurated in, I believe it's April of 2009, he does a tour of the Middle East and delivers um, a number of speeches on US foreign policy and in the Middle East. And, and the purposes of those tours is really to see and be seen by the public by and large in these particular locations and communicate something about a shift or a change in US foreign policy. And let's be clear, these moments too, they're not just about foreign policy, they're also about elevating the image of the president. You know, that, that their motorcade can go through the streets through cheering crowds. And, and that's something that I talk about in my book. It's not just about elevating the image of the, the, the nation, it's about the US president. And in fact, these visits routinely get used in presidential campaigns to present the person of the president as this powerful international figure that then convinces or attempts to convince a US public, the electorate that, oh, this person represents us well on the global stage. And so, you know, they, they deserve a second term. Exactly. That makes me instantly think of in 2008 when um, 
then candidate or then senator obama went overseas during yeah. his campaign like that a perfect example of that right well and actually yes and what's fascinating about that example in 2008 when barack obama was you know going overseas but particularly in he goes to berlin and he wants to speak in front of um, their Berlin Wall or the Brandenburg Gate, right? And Angela Merkel actually says no. And she does not allow him to do so. But when he goes back as president, he's able to deliver a similar type of speech. And so you see that there is this rhetorical precedent of where presidents go and who can deliver what types of speeches. Because as we know, Berlin, if you think about Kennedy, you think about Reagan, there is this historical precedent. And Obama hadn't reached that status yet. Um, because he was a candidate and not the president. Wow. Also interesting to think about international actors, you know, keeping those rules in check. So many different layers mm -hmm. to this. You know, this year we've seen the emergence of, I'm going to go ahead and call them, I don't want to say it. They're not good news sources. I'm thinking of One American News Network or Newsmax. Mm -hmm. Are those sources that you are also looking at for, like, I do not, I don't know how much the president is actually speaking to these networks, but are those networks that you are checking up on to see what kind of presidential rhetoric is coming out of those? Or, you know, are, the, are those things something that's on your radar? So I, I am aware of them to the extent that I know, at least in recent weeks, um, the president has been recommending that the public turn into those networks, right? Um, and away from CNN or Fox News, for example. Um, currently, no, I am not paying close and careful attention to those networks because I would not say that they're verifiable news sources, right? Now, if I were to start a project on the various ways that President Trump, for example, has been covered by various networks, they absolutely would be part of you know, my sample um, or the places that I would look um, or to consider, you know, how those particular um, networks or news sources are, are reaching a different type of base. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, that's just something I was interested in. Mm -hmm. um, another thing I'm interested in is what your take has been, especially as a political rhetoric scholar, about how Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg are treating free speech and rhetoric on their sites, those being Twitter and Facebook. You know, the president's rhetoric has been flagged and flagged and flagged for misinformation and, you know, different things. Um, what what is your what is your take been on these big social media's uh, handling of this? I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think unfortunately, you see this conflation or this very fuzzy line between how do we think about corporations and how do we think about political speech. Um, and you have two incredibly powerful news sources, Facebook and Twitter, who I would argue have an ethical and societal obligation to support and defend what we know to be true and factual evidence. Um, and I think you see, you know, Twitter has taken steps um, to, to do that. In fact, I was surprised a few weeks ago when I, I went to share an article that I had read on another platform, I think it was from the New York Times. And it said to me, are you sure you want to share this without having read it? And I thought, oh, this is great. I'm so glad they're doing that, right? Like prompting this informed electorate 
Um, I think the problem, right, and I, you see this not just in Facebook and Twitter, but you see it from a lot of politicians in the Senate right now is that people are scared. And they're scared of losing followers and they're scared of losing voters and they're scared of losing money. Um, and I think at a certain moment, um, Twitter and Facebook need to recognize that they are much more than just corporations, that they have an incredible um, power and potential to really undermine our democracy or actually support our attempt to keep it. And I hope they make the right call. Um, but, you know, there have been some less than than promising signs. I certainly hope they make the right call, too. You know, someone that doesn't use Twitter, obviously, as much as the president, the president-elect, uh, Joe Biden, <laughs> but he has a history, a well-documented history of rhetorical slip-ups, um, gaffes, as they're pop popularly called. If you were giving advice to the president-elect on how to handle his rhetoric in the coming months and years, what is at the top of that list of advice? Yeah, you know, I would say that I've been watching the president-elect and President Trump pretty closely over the last few months. And the thing that I've been um, surprised and, and impressed by is actually how clearly President-elect Biden and his team are actually utilizing his Twitter feed. Um, a project that I think would be really interesting if anyone's looking, probably not now for a research paper topic, but next semester, um, to do an analysis side by side of Trump, President Trump's Twitter feed and President-elect Biden's Twitter feed from the last two months. Because what is notable is you see two distinct rhetorical styles, um, one that's clearly written by President Trump himself and you know has its own rhetorical style and flourishes and you know, capitalization, et cetera. And what Vice President or President-elect Biden has been doing is having very clear, simple, direct messages that are all united around shared ideals or shared values, seeking to identify with a US electorate, being explicit whether or not you voted for me, I will be a president for all Americans. And I think that's absolutely the right message to be utilizing right now. I mean, let's be honest, President-elect Biden is stepping into what I would argue one of the most difficult situations in US history as a president-elect. And unfortunately, you know, it may only get more complicated and difficult as we see the progression of COVID-19 over the next few months. And so I think, re, you know, staying on task with that message of identification, of unification, of being really committed to, to public health, to getting schools back opening, thinking about small businesses, all of that is, is really important. And I would argue, quite frankly, in the severity of our current moment, um, I think the US public cares more about practically what is he um, and you know, Vice President-elect Harris, what are they going to be doing to address these moments versus you know, some particular slip up that he makes. Um, and so I think he's really leaning into that and really honestly filling a void of leadership that has been there for quite a while and really doing that even before he takes office. Most definitely. And I'm actually really glad you brought up uh, the president's capitalization in his tweets, because uh, that is something that I have always found so funny. But as we're wrapping up, I think that ending on a positive note is in order. What are you positive and hopeful about in regards to political rhetoric? You know, as we're entering this new administration and this new 
leg of American history, at least I hope. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, remains to be seen. We can make many predictions. You know, I think what I will say is obviously for all of us, 2020 has been an incredibly difficult and challenging year. And I think that has been magnified, especially with a lot of the division um, around the 2020 US presidential election. But what I will say is that I have been heartened and encouraged by the level of political participation that we have seen, even here on UW's campus, um, thinking about the students in my classes and the conversations that I have with them about how we analyze political rhetoric, how we can make arguments, how we provide verifiable evidence. And I do think you know, and I think it's too early to call and maybe this is too optimistic, but I do think that we are in a moment in which we can really reflect on the previous four years and patterns of presidential rhetoric and how we communicate with the public. And we as the US electorate, we as the people get to decide if that is what we want. And we have a voice in political agency. And I do think that you know, it is fair to call President Trump's communication styles and his rhetoric unprecedented. And it's also important to remember that, that one of the things that he has done is really laid bare to us some of the ways that we seek to communicate with audiences and how we seek to persuade people. And, and I think it's a real moment that we can reckon with and decide, is this what we want our president to sound like? Is this how we want them to, to address us and talk to us? Are these the types of values that that we share and we want to uphold. Um, that's a national conversation we need to have. Obviously, there is still deep division. Um, but I think it really invites us in this moment to exercise our agency and to not just take the office of the presidency for granted, right? But to actually demand that it becomes something that we can have confidence and trust in. And there's a lot of work to be done to get to that place. But I think we're at a moment in which maybe we're able to have, have that conversation. That is an amazing way to end off. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Prash. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.